Hey, my name is Jonathan Frakes, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Broadcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... While other shows like Bonkers and uh, a few others kind of were problem children for this studio, we were just sort of humming along. And then I remember at one point, Gary took Frank and I out to lunch. And he goes, well, tell me, you know, what, tell me the kind of stories you're telling in the show. So I start saying, well, we're doing this, we're doing this. Santos and Fox uh, get married, they have a kid. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I wouldn't do that. You can't have the bad guys have a kid. What are you going to do, take the kid away from them? They're the villain. Yeah, don't do that. So Frank and I exchange these incredibly nervous glances, and then I go, well, we've already done it. Here's your host, Jamie Green. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. And you can find our catalog of episodes anywhere you find podcasts, whether that be iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, any place at all. You can find us there. So go ahead, hit subscribe. Don't miss out on any episodes. We come to you weekly with great conversations with creative people from all over many different industries. And this week, we're welcoming back Greg Weissman. If you go all the way back to episode number five, when we had no idea what we were doing, Greg was kind enough to sit down and talk to us back then. I think he was only our second interview at the time. Uh, And at that point, it was a great conversation. If you, I, I would highly, highly recommend going back and taking a listen to that. We talk a lot about his career in, in general and lots of the different projects that he worked on. This episode here spun out of an article or a story I wrote for Sci-Fi Wire, which was an oral history of Gargoyles, the animated, the, the Disney animated series from the early 90s. Greg was the co-creator on that show, and he was really uh, intimately involved in, in the development and uh, the, the, the creation of the first two seasons. And I sat down with Greg, and we talked a lot about how the show came to be, uh, what it was originally supposed to be, which was almost nothing like what we saw on TV and what we all remember and love. We talked about uh, the, you know, some of the backstory, some of the inside baseball stuff of, of of what was going on behind the scenes. A lot of this uh, conversation made it into my sci-fi piece, but not all of it did. I talked to Greg for for well over an hour, so I just wanted to bring you guys the full, unfiltered, unedited conversation. And uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And I'm just going to stop talking because this is a long co- long episode, long conversation, and you don't need to hear me jabbering away. Once again, I want to say thank you for coming back week after week. and subscribe, listening, downloading, talking to your friends, spreading the word online. It really does help. We'd love to see you guys talk to us online and Twitter and Facebook. 
And let me know who you'd like to see on future episodes. I'll do what I can. But until then, take a listen to my conversation with Greg Weissman about gargoyles. Take care, guys. At the time, Gargoyles was um, in a, kind of a departure for Disney. It was a wholly original property. It wasn't uh, based on a toy line or a film. What was it, do you think, that allowed them or made Disney uh, take that leap of faith and do something entirely original? Well, the main thing, I guess, was that uh, there was a sense among uh, my boss, Gary Kreisel, which I shared. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it was uh, just him. Right. But, uh, but obviously he took the lead on this, which he had also talked to Jeffrey Katzenberg about, um, which was that the Disney Afternoon was wonderful, and we had wonderful shows on the Disney Afternoon, but every single one, for the most part, up to that point, had been a funny animal show. Mm-hmm. And they all were different. I mean, I don't want to make them all sound, oh, they were all the same show. They weren't. And yet, from a visual standpoint, um, there was a commonality there. And if you looked at it, if you just glanced at it, there was this commonality. And there was a concern um, that over time, the audience would just grow tired of it. Yeah. Um, not because any of the new shows were good or anything like that, but just simply um, funny animal fatigue, in essence. You know, enough of this, give me something different. And we didn't want to abandon what we were good at at all, but mm-hmm. we also wanted to show that we could do other things, and we wanted the afternoon as a programming block to be a little more diverse. So there were a couple directions that we went very consciously. One was into more sort of Tex Avery-style cartoons with the Schnookums and Meat show, and the other was um, Gargoyles uh, with the dramatic action show. Um, The thing that gave us confidence that we could both do it and that the audience would be there for it was... um, frankly, Batman the Animated Series. And we weren't trying to emulate Batman, but certainly that darker, dramatic tone that Batman had, frankly, much darker than Gargoyles was, Yeah, um, gave us the confidence to go, oh, there's an audience for action drama here at a high-quality level. And so, and by the way, what we're really talking about is down the road because Gargoyles was not developed as an action drama. I was going to ask you about that. It was originally supposed to be a comedy, right? It was an adventure comedy very much in the mode of Gummy Bears, Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. Yeah. Um, In fact, I was specifically trying to emulate that show. Gummy Bears... uh, was, in my opinion, a lot of people's opinion, a really terrific show created by a guy named Jim Magon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim is spelled J-Y-M-N. Magon is M-A-G-O-N. And um, and it was a wonderful show with this rich medieval backstory and these great characters and, and funny but full of action and full of adventure and 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 
I thought this was a terrific show, and we thought as a company that the show didn't get the respect it deserved. It was a completely original property other than the name itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was... Uh, there was a lot of market confusion between gummy bears and care bears because both shows featured um, these cute, cuddly, uh, multicolored bears. <laughs> but the thing about care bears was a sort of saccharine sweet show, which was hard for anyone really over the age of six or seven to watch. I mean, almost painful for a guy like me to watch. Right. And gummy bears was so much fun. And yet, because we were the one named after a candy, uh, we uh, were confused with them to a great extent and sort of written off. And I didn't think that was right, um, A, for that show, but also I thought there's something in this kind of show that I want to do again. Yeah. And I had very little to do with gummy bears. I'm not trying to take any credit for it. I uh, as a current executive at Disney, I uh, kibitzed a little on the last couple seasons, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I just loved it. I mean, I can say that pretty objectively because, uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't involved with it all that much. Right. Um, but we set out to make a show that was in the Gummy Bears mode with this rich backstory and these great characters, but we wanted to it to stand out and, and get more respect. So um, the word edge was really big in the 90s. Everything had to have edge. <laughs> and so we did a couple, we made a couple of very conscious decisions to give a Gummy Bears-like show more edge. Uh, one was um, we still had a rich medieval backstory, much as Gummy Bears had, but we would set the show in the present. We would put our gargoyles to sleep for a thousand years, um, and they would wake up in the present. and we just thought them being in modern-day Manhattan would be edgier than them being back in the sort of soft-focus uh, medieval times kind of world. And then the second obvious thing um, was that instead of them being cute, cuddly, multicolored bears, we'd make them cute, cuddly, multicolored gargoyles, which seemed edgier. Mm-hmm. Um, and... but. They were still cute. They were still cuddly. They were still multicolored. Um, and even from a size standpoint, they were basically the same size as the gummy bears. Um, and we had a whole development, comedy adventure development, with that version of the show. Um, we started out with the leader of these comedic gummy bears being a character named Dakota, a female lead. And Dakota quickly just seemed boring. She was sort of the straight man to all the funny, wacky gargoyles running around. And so we decided to switch Dakota to a character. We changed her name to Demona and made her the bad guy, the Mm -hmm. one evil uh, gargoyle. But still, you know, this was comedic villainy. We had uh, the Xanatos character back then. He was called Xavier, um, and he was very much in the mode of Duke Igthorne or Captain Hook. Um, but he was, you know, uh, Lex Luthor, Bruce Wayne, you know, Tony Stark, Rich. Um, uh, but he was a 
So he's very much like Xanatos in a lot of ways, but he was a comedic villain. Um, he had an assistant named Mr. Owen, um, who in the first episode gets hit by a magic spell and is turned into an anthropomorphic aardvark <laughs> and spends the whole rest of the show trying to get changed back into a human being. Not that episode, the series. Right, 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 right. So he's an aardvark in a suit for the entire series. And and it was fun, and it was great, and I loved that show. And we pitched it to Michael Eisner, and he didn't like it. He passed on it. And But everyone at TV Animation thought, there's something to this idea. And my boss, Gary Kreisel, said, go back to the drawing board and try and figure out another approach, because there's something to this. And, you know, it was an original property. It was a slightly harder sell because it was original and not based on a movie or something like that, or a candy bar. Um, and I showed the pitch to a handful of people at Disney just to get some feedback. And one of the people I showed it to was Tad Stones, the creator of uh, Darkwing Duck. And Tad looked at it and said, you've got all these little funny gargoyles. What if instead of them, you had one big gargoyle? And he had seen an early preview of Beauty and the Beast. Hmm. And we had the female human friend to the gargoyles. Like, you know, take her and make her beauty and create a beast. And this really resonated for me. My background actually wasn't in funny comedic stuff. It was in superheroes. I'd worked for DC Comics for years. Um... And that really clicked for me. And uh, Greg Guler and I, uh, the artist Greg Guler and I, created the character of Goliath, who was the one character who did not exist in the old comedy development. And then we took the whole comedy development, put it through the prism of Goliath, and came out the other end fundamentally with the show that you're all familiar with that aired on television. And we got very enthusiastic about this show, and we came up with all these ideas for villains like the pack and the mutates, and um, Xavier became Xanatos and stopped being, you know, a silly Igthorn type. Demona became this complex, um, tragic figure, um, to some extent in the Magneto mold. Um, and these were things you hadn't seen on television. You had sometimes seen stuff like this in comics, but we were doing superheroes without any of the trappings of superheroes. So we were solidly in the superhero genre, but, but there were no tights or capes or obvious superpowers. Yeah. It felt more grounded, even though it really, really wasn't. Yeah. Um, and... We got very enthusiastic, created this pitch with all these elements in it, all this great stuff, and we pitched it to Michael Eisner about six months after we had pitched him the comedy development. Um, and he passed. He didn't like it. And um, the next day, we had what we called a post-mortem meeting with Jeffrey Katzenberg, where we were talking about the shows that Michael did buy the day before, and it was either Goof Trooper Bonkers or both. I can't remember now. I mean, I remember those shows got bought, but I don't remember those were the ones that coincided right. with that particular Gargoyles pitch. But it was one of those, I think. 
And it was just like, okay, what are our marching orders? Uh, all right, who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? That kind of thing. And we went through that meeting, all good. And we were, and uh, Gary and myself and uh, Bruce Cranston got up to go. And Jeffrey said, and you're going to work on Gargoyle some more. And I looked at him, I looked at Bruce, and I was like, well, no, Michael killed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pitched it as a comedy, he killed it. We pitched it as an action drama, he killed it. I, uh, I kind of think it's dead at this point. And Jeffrey said, oh, he didn't kill it. He just thought it needed more work. So again, I glance over at Bruce and Gary, who uh, Bruce looks as surprised as I do, and frankly, so did <laughs> Gary, although I later found out that Gary and Jeffrey had had a talk prior to that um, about the fact that the Disney afternoon was getting a little too homogenous in its look and presentation. Mm-hmm. But what this was really telling me was that Michael hadn't liked the show, but Jeffrey had. And in those days, before Michael and Jeffrey really had their big split, you know, Jeffrey wasn't going to defy Michael in a meeting, but he thought there was something there and he wanted us, us to try again. So we went back to the drawing board for a third time now, and we took a hard look at the show to figure out what we needed to change to try and sell it to Michael. And I just said, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with this show. The problem is not the show. The problem is the pitch. Um, we put too much into the pitch. Um, we put the mutates in the pitch. We put the pack in the pitch. We put this in the pitch and that in the pitch and all this stuff in the pitch. All stuff, by the way, which eventually did get into the show. It wasn't bad stuff, but it made the pitch just feel busy and diffuse and unfocused. So we cut tons of material from that pitch and refocused it on the original idea that Tad had suggested which was the Beauty and the Beast idea. Now, by this time, the movie had come out. And I don't know if you heard of it, Beauty and the Beast, it was a minor hit for Walt Disney Company. So um, we thought, okay, this is something he'll get. We really focused the pitch on Goliath and Elisa. We made it about their story. We had a little bit about Brooklyn Lexington, Broadway, Hudson and Bronx, like one card for the trio, one card for Hudson, one card for Bronx, one card for Xanatos, one card for Demona, just to show that we had good villains there. Um, but otherwise, the pitch was just very focused on Goliath and Elisa. Mm-hmm. And so six months later, so this is you know two years into our development on this thing at this point, we pitched it to Michael again, and this time he bought it. And... When that meeting ended, Jeffrey looked at me and said, wow, you added a lot to that, didn't you? <laughs> and, of course, I hadn't. I just cut shit from it. Yeah. And, um, but I looked back at him and said, yes, I did. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and so we sold the show and got working on it. And, you know, I was a development executive, so normally – what I would do is, uh, over on the production side, uh, Tom Rizzico would find a uh, directing producer for it, and I would find the story editor for it, and um, and we'd sort of pair those two together uh, 
either as producer and story editor or as co-producers, and we'd sort of, you know, nudge them forward and then wave goodbye and say yeah. good luck, you know, kind of. Uh, but, of course, Disney hadn't done a show like this before. So we didn't necessarily have the right people on staff to produce and story edit this show. So Tom was having trouble finding the guy to be the directing producer, and I was having trouble finding the guy to be the story editor producer on the show. And went through a number of people, uh, both of us did, trying to find the right fits. But in the meantime, the show had you know deadlines now, and it had to go forward, which meant someone had to make creative decisions about it, even though we didn't have any producers on the show yet. Mm-hmm. And because it had been my baby, I developed it. You know, the whole notion of doing gargoyles was um, my thing. I had been fascinated with gargoyles since high school. Um, I just naturally took on the responsibility of making all these creative decisions. So then by the time we got Frank Parr to produce the show and Michael Reeves to story edit it, both of whom were fantastic, uh, and both of whom had been, in essence, stolen from Batman the Animated Series. <laughs> uh, uh, I was too involved to walk away. And so I went to Gary and Bruce and I said, um, I want to produce this show. I want to move over to the other side of the desk and produce Gargoyles. And they sort of looked at me and said, yeah, Greg, you've never been a producer before. And I said, well, that's true, but, you know, four and a half years ago, I'd never been a development executive before, and that worked out all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they went and talked about it. They came back to me and said, okay, look, you need to keep doing your development job. But um, And we were only doing 13 episodes for the first season, uh, and we had a 10-month sliding schedule to do it in, which was, you know, not easy, but not killer. Um and they said, so you do both jobs, and they had me do two full-time jobs while paying me for the um, the lesser. Right, just for one job. <laughs> I know how that works. <laughs> um, and uh, so we did. Uh, we did 13 episodes uh, with Frank and I as uh, producing partners and, and Michael as the story editor. Um, and... Uh, it went great. The show was a big hit in its first season. Everyone was thrilled. Michael held a meeting. Michael, who had you know been so tough to sell on the show, became one of its biggest boosters. And um, I was in a meeting with uh, a bunch of Disney executives, uh, and Michael expressed the desire. This is you know 1994ish something like that, mm-hmm. three or four, expresses the desire to buy Marvel comics. Um, years, of course, years right. and years and years before Disney actually ended up buying it. And um, his own people talked him out of it, said, oh, you don't want that. The rights are a disaster. Sony has Spider-Man, but someone, but someone another studio thinks they have Spider-Man. Marvel <laughs> people were selling rights left and right, not paying attention to any conflicts. You, you know, you'd get the prop, you'd get the company and then find out you couldn't make any of the movies that you want to make. Yeah. Don't do it. 
And so he then turned to me and said, okay, well, Warner Brothers has DC, and I'm being told here that Marvel is a no-go. We need to build an action universe for the Disney brand. This is Eisner can saying gargoyles, Can Gargoyles be the foundation of that? And that worked for me because I thought of the Fantastic Four, you know, how, uh, or the Silver Age Flash and how for DC, the Silver Age Flash became the foundation on which they built a whole, in essence, the whole, what we consider the modern DC universe. And the Fantastic Four became the foundation over which they built the whole uh, Marvel universe. You know, and it's not that there weren't properties that existed before that, Submariner, Captain America, etc., and obviously the same on the DC side, but it was a sort of conscious decision that we're going to build. Mm-hmm. And so we began writing backdoor pilots into the second season. Now, the thing that happened with the second season was that um, uh, we got an order for 52, I'm shortening the story, but we got an order for 52 episodes on the same 10-month sliding schedule <laughs> that we had done 13 on the previous year. And um, so first thing was is I went to Gary and Bruce and said, I can't, you know, it was one thing doing 13 episodes and still being the development executive. I can't do 52 under those circumstances. So I moved over full-time uh, to do Gargoyles. Um, and we hired, in addition to Michael Reeves, we hired Bryn Chandler Reeves, um, Gary Sperling and uh, Kerry Bates to be three other story editors. So we had four story editors with me as sort of the supervising story editor um, to make sure everything was cohesive. We hired a bunch of directors. Um, the whole crew expanded. The universe of the show expanded. And on top of that, we started doing these backdoor pilots so that Gargoyles could be the first of many action shows in a Gargoyles universe. None of that worked out. None of that latter piece worked out because um, all the big Gargoyle supporters left the company. Um, Rich Frank left, Gary Kreisel left, Bruce Cranston left, Jeffrey Katzenberg left, and Eisner didn't leave right away, but he uh, was getting a lot of criticism from uh, the board about what a micromanager he was. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things he gave up was choosing the animated series that we did. Prior to that, he was like the last of the Hollywood moguls. He would, he would choose the shows, and at the time we didn't appreciate it because it was just like it seemed so arbitrary. But the great thing about that had been that if Michael Eisner says we're making this show, everybody in the company gets on board or gets out of the way. Mm-hmm. Now, when Michael gave up that, he didn't give that authority to any one individual. And from that point on, right up till this very day, not just at Disney, but at every company, those decisions are made by committee. People from multiple different divisions would get to weigh in. And if they didn't all agree, often that just meant it didn't happen. Um, And there was less of that. authority mm-hmm. being wielded and on that level it didn't end up being a good thing you know the one advantage to the dictatorship is that the trains run on time right, right. so uh, so 
once all these people left, and then ultimately even Michael left, um, all these people who had been huge supporters of Gargoyles, all the way up to the very top of upper management, that includes Frank Wells, too, who passed away, uh, who was killed in a helicopter accident, um, they were all gone. And support for Gargoyles just evaporated. And there was another factor, too, which was that um, season one, we'd been a huge hit. In season two, we were a solid hit, like a single. You know, we weren't doing badly. But when season two premiered, suddenly it was opposite the first season in America of Power Rangers. Okay. And Power Rangers was a blockbuster. Uh, that was a grand slam. And we were, we had been a double, maybe a triple, never a home run, but we'd been, you know, definitely at least a double season one. But Power Rangers sucked up all the oxygen in the stadium, and suddenly we were just a single, and Power Rangers was a home run, yeah. if not a grand slam home run. And so suddenly they were looking at us like, well, the show did okay, but it didn't do great. Our toys were a huge success during season one. Uh, the Kenner toy line for Gargoyles was the top-selling boys' toy line at that time. But again, season two came out, and everything was about Power Rangers. And um, I don't even know if we did badly, but we didn't do as well. Um, and so it just became this property that, that no one had a use for. Um, but... That was a, a factor less of the property itself and more of it just happening to hit during both the Power Rangers craze. And in case that wasn't bad enough, this was also the year of the O.J. Simpson trial, um, and we were constantly getting preempted by trial coverage. Oh, constantly. Yeah. And, um, and that was true for Power Rangers, too, but for Power Rangers, you know, you could tune into basically any episode at any time we had this sequential arc kept derailing us, you know? Um, so, for example, in the middle of season two, we had these world tour episodes that were supposed to go for about um, four weeks. But because of preemptions and um, delays, uh, it wound up lasting six months or something like that. So the audience began to feel like this world t tour that we had sent Goliath, Elisa, Angela, and Bronx on was never going to end. <laughs> and it was not designed to feel that way. And maybe we didn't do too many world tour episodes, but if they had aired the way they were originally meant to air, I don't think it would have been a problem. Um, but instead, it just felt like it was going on forever, and that hurt us. Um, I also made another decision early on in season two which was that we would do previously on Gargoyles, little 30-second previously segments mm -hmm. at the very beginning of every sure. episode. Um, that made sense to me. I came from, you know, I was a huge Hill Street Blues fan. Hill Street Blues was a major influence on Gargoyles. Um, and they always did previously on Hill Street Blues, so I thought this was good. But the main reason I did it was not because I thought my audience needed a little leg up to understand the episode. I didn't think that at all. The thing was, is, you know, we were getting animation back from Japan, from Korea, 
um, even from China, and it wasn't always great. And the ability to cut 30 seconds out of the show of bad footage mm. was a huge editing help to us. So we did those previously segments fundamentally to give us a little more give in editing uh, the episode as a whole. But in hindsight, it was a huge mistake. People would see those previously segments and go, wow, I've missed a lot. I'm too late to come on board for this show. Uh-huh. And that wasn't true. In other words, every episode was designed to stand alone as a great story. Now, the hope, of course, was that they'd watch that episode and go, wow, I want to see what happens next. And go, wow, I'd like to see the episodes I missed. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't be confused within the episode. Everything you needed to know about that episode was in the episode without any of the previously. There are a couple exceptions. We had a few multi-parters where you needed um, to see what happened on the previous part. But each of those multi-parters stood alone, and certainly every individual episode that wasn't part of a multi-parter stood alone, and yet every single episode in season two had a previously on it, 30-second previously clip thing. Right. And I think that hurt us. And so in every show I've done since, I never do that, ever. Even if I'm doing a two-parter, I find a way in part two to, as elegantly as possible, summarize what happened in part one so that even if you miss part one, you don't need a previously to understand what's going on in part two. You can see that in the Young Justice pilot two-parter. There are no previously. I will never do previously ever again. <laughs> you learned your uh, lesson. For that. <laughs> so there were a lot of factors that sort of combined to get to, so that we took some hits. And then even then, the property was still um, pretty viable. And ABC was purchased by Disney. And ABC needed a boys' action show, and um, they said, let's do Gargoyles. But a couple things happened. One was, um, by that time, uh, Frank had left to go to DreamWorks, um, and they uh, offered the show to me for that third ABC season, but it was clear to me they didn't really want me to say yes. Uh, Both Bruce and Gary had gone to DreamWorks, Frank had gone to DreamWorks, and I think the perception was that I was biding my time to the end of post-production on uh, Gargoyles, and then I would go to DreamWorks. So they stopped inviting me to meetings because I think uh, Dean Valentine and other people who were at Disney at that point sort of viewed me as a spy in their ranks. And it wasn't true. In fact, I really wanted to stay at Disney. But um, when they offered me the third season of Gargoyles, um, they offered me a demotion from producer to story editor. They weren't going to let me produce the third season. They um, told me that they were going to uh, move the show out of Disney TV animation and give it to Deke. And I don't... And Deke at the time was doing a much lower quality of product. Um, They didn't end up giving it to Deke. They they ended up giving it to Melvana, which still was lower quality than Disney, but not nearly as bad as Deke would have been. 
Um, and they gave me a schedule. This was in November of uh, 1995. They gave me a schedule where the first script was due in October of 1995. <laughs> and I sort of looked at the schedule, looked at them and said, do you guys have a time machine that I don't know about? <laughs> and they're like, well, we know the schedule will have to get adjusted, but we wanted to sort of show you where it has to end. So you'll have to catch up to get there, which meant that I would already be studying, starting under the gun. And I and this was like on a Thursday or Friday or something. I said, look, I, just give me the weekend to think about this. And I felt that they were sort of asking me to supervise the demise of the show. Um, and nevertheless, I came back on Monday thinking I would probably walk away, but... Um, still open to talking about it. And when I got in Monday, I discovered they'd hired my replacements already. Wow. And I said, what's this? And they're like, well, we still like you to say yes, but just in case you say no, we had to be ready to go. So I was just like, okay, obviously, there's no real desire to keep me here. And I passed. And we made a deal for me to write the first episode because they were so under the gun and I could write it faster than anyone else um, who was new to the show. Um, and they had good people do that third season, but they were people with no time um, and who didn't know the show and didn't have time to familiarize themselves with the show. So it, if you watch the third season, it feels a lot more like X-Men than Gargoyles. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the characters are behaving out of character um, and, um, and of course the animations of very mixed quality and, and the stories aren't great. And so from a fan standpoint, we kind of ignore that third season. Um, we think of the comics that I wrote for SLG. I wrote 18 issues of Gargoyles and Gargoyles Bad Guys, uh, which was going to be one of the spinoffs that never got made, um, and, uh, for television, yeah. um, and uh, we sort of consider those 18 issues the official canon third season of Gargoyles, and we just don't count the Goliath Chronicles, which is what ABC ended up naming the third mm -hmm. season of Gargoyles. And um, again, a lot of great people worked on it, I, uh, but they didn't really have the time to do justice to the property, and mostly what that meant is they didn't have time to watch 65 prior episodes and get to know those characters and get to know how the show played out. Um, I took on a consulting role, but all of the all of the suggestions I made, like you should do this or you should do that, didn't take any of those suggestions. On occasion, when I said, oh my God, don't do that, they took those suggestions. So I stopped, I think, some of the <laughs> worst notions that they had from going forward, but I wasn't able to get them to do any of the things that I thought they needed to do. Um, I just was able to stop them from doing things that really would have not worked. Yeah. Um, and I ended up going to DreamWorks, which is what everyone at Disney figured I was going to do. And they're like, see, we knew he was going to go to DreamWorks. And of course, it was for them, that was a self-fulfilling prophecy because, you know, they didn't offer me anything. They didn't offer me the opportunity to stay at Disney um, literally until two days before my end day. Um, <laughs> I got taken to lunch, um, and they said, 
we'd love for you to stay. And I'm like, I already took a job at DreamWorks. Um, and they're like, oh, well, we tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, yeah, you guys tried really hard. Um, and, you know, and DreamWorks didn't work out well for me. It was not a great um, situation. Um, I spent two and a half years there, largely frustrated. I didn't produce anything. Um, it's like a big black hole in my resume. And, you know, ended up moving on, uh, producing some stuff at Sony and other places, eventually even coming back and doing work for Disney. But, um, but so, you know, I, I hadn't wanted to go to DreamWorks, um, but it, it yeah. was in essence left as the only option. Yeah, they kind of pushed you in that direction. Um, yeah. Okay, you covered a lot of ground here. <laughs> um, you you did address m many of the questions that I had. I want to just go back and fill in a couple of the cracks. Um, during okay. during those first two seasons when it was at Disney, you said that you know you went through the different pitches and then you you went off with this, telling the story that you wanted to tell. But did you get any sort of directive from Disney or from above you, or did they really was it more of hands off? They just let you do what you wanted to do. Um, so I've been asked this before and what I usually do is bring up uh, I, the metaphor of the uh, lunatic asylum <laughs> uh, so the deal was um, there were a number of shows that were for one reason or another at TVA at that time in trouble and I was no longer executive so I wasn't like on the inside I don't know exactly what the trouble was or why and God knows I don't remember anymore mm -hmm. but um, I had been a development executive for five years so I but now I was a producer which meant I had immediately sort of switched over to being a lunatic um, in the eyes of the bosses. You know, I had gone instantaneously from being a member of the staff to being one of those lunatics that right. we have to manage to run the asylum. Right. But at any lunatic asylum, they choose some of the patients as trustees. Um, and they give them sticks <laughs> and... They're not allowed to leave, but they've got a little more responsibility to help take care of the other lunatics. And because I'd been a development executive, I was the lunatic most trusted. So I was still going to Tuesday morning meetings, which were mostly for executives, or at least I went to them certainly through the whole first season and deep into the second season as well um, until, again, Bruce and Gary left and Dean Valentine took over and then was no longer invited to those meetings. So people would say, how's it going on Gargoyles? And I would say, good. Which it mostly was. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that there were no problems. There were problems. Um, it was a tough show, but we had a great cast. We had a strong crew. We had problems here and there, but we got through them. And while other shows like Bonkers and uh, a few others 
kind of were problem children for the studio, we were just sort of humming along to a great extent. And then I remember at one point, Gary took Frank and I out to lunch. And he it, he, it was interesting. He started off the lunch by being kind of apologetic, saying, look, I'm really sorry. Um, we've been so focused on this and on this and on this that I have not been paying any attention to gargoyles. How's it going? Going good? I mean, what were we going to say? Oh, right. it sucks. You know, it's going good. Everything's, everything's pretty good. You know, we have challenges, but we're, we're good. And he goes, well, tell me, you know, what? tell me the kind of stories you're telling in the show. So I start saying, well, we're doing this, we're doing this. Xantos and Fox uh, get married. They have a kid. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, I wouldn't do that. Hmm. You can't have the bad guys have a kid. What are you going to do, take the kid away from them? They're the villain. Um, you can't take the kid away, and you can't have the bad guys raising a kid. Um, yeah, don't do that. So Frank and I um, exchange these incredibly nervous glances, and then I go, well, we've already done it. <laughs> you know, I wasn't telling him about stuff that was upcoming. Yeah. I was telling him about stuff we were way into production on. And there's this long pause from Gary, and I can tell what's going through his head. He had all these problem shows, and we were not one of them. And he had this, and there was this moment where he's like, I don't want to do this with the kid, with the bad guys having a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, if I do this, I'm going to be pulling this show apart too. And I could see this, almost literally, this wave of exhaustion in him. And he just said, so he, when he finally spoke, he just said, well, just don't dwell on it. <laughs> and I said, no, no, we won't dwell on it. We walked away saying, what does that even mean? <laughs> but we did exactly what we wanted to do. There were maybe two stories um, that we wanted to do, that I wanted to do, that Frank wanted to do, that um, we didn't end up doing. One, we didn't do because um, just... It was a tough story. It was a story about uh, all the tricksters um, working together, and it was a really complicated idea, and we couldn't quite lick it in a timely fashion. And then there was another story where we were going to do a two-parter where we um, adapted Shakespeare's Macbeth, and we would use the actual language of Shakespeare and have our characters be magically thrust into this play that was coming to life. And Goliath would have been Macduff, and Macbeth obviously would have been Macbeth, and Demona would have been Lady Macbeth, and Elisa would have been Lady Macduff, and, it's, and Hudson would have been Duncan, and it would have been frightening because, you know, you don't know when these characters are murdered in the play, are they going to come back to life when the play is over? You know what I mean? Right. And it was really cool idea and it made uh, my current executives nervous They're like I don't know you know actual Shakespearean dialogue um, will the kids be able to get it I'm like look I, I know Shakespeare really well we've got a lot of Shakespeare in the show I will edit this dialogue carefully so it is completely understandable and he uh, was not sure about that so he took it to Gary and Gary had kind of the same reaction. He said, look, if you really want to do it, you can do it. But I don't want to take two episodes for this. 
um, you know, it, that's too big a financial risk. We could end up throwing away these two episodes. But you can do it for one episode. And then I'm the one who ended up killing it because I said, look, taking the entire play of Macbeth and cutting it down to 44 minutes was hard enough. Right. Cutting it down to 22 was impossible. So I ended up saying no to that. But other than those two stories, both of which we could have done, what the first if I had solved it faster, and the second if I'd been willing to do it as one episode, um, other than those two, we got to do exactly what we wanted to do. Nice. I'm not saying every scene came out great or, or every episode was well animated. I'm not saying there's not a line of dialogue here and there that could have been improved. Or I'm not at all saying the show was perfect. But what I am saying is we did 65 episodes. We took the 65 best stories that we had in our arsenal at that time, and we made the show we wanted to make, and we had almost no interference. Nice. You mentioned the kids in the audience, and ostensibly this was a kid's show, but um, as you yourself said earlier, you know it did cross a lot of ba- lines with, with who enjoyed the show and who was watching the show. Who did you have in mind as you were writing and creating the show? Like, who were you making the show for? So we had um, a target we had to hit because of the toys. Because the toys helped pay for the show. Right. Uh, and that was boys 6 to 11. We had to reach boys 6 to 11. And no one was sitting there saying, and don't reach anyone else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so from my point of view, I'm like, yeah, I'll hit boys 6 to 11. That ain't a problem. But I'm not satisfied with that. First off, I want girls 6 to 11 also. And for that matter, I can pretty much take four- and five-year-olds without much of a problem. Because this show's got a lot of funny stuff, fun characters, a lot of eye candy, big explosions. We weren't nearly as dark as Batman was. Um, people think of Gargoyles as being a dark show, I guess, when you compare it to Goof Troop um, and Gummy Bears, I can see why they say that, but the fact of the matter is we were not a dark show. Backgrounds on Batman were done on black paper. Ours were not. (laughs) Ours had a very rich color palette because nighttime was the only time our gargoyles were alive. They didn't view the night as a dark, scary place. That was their world. That was their life. So our color palette was full of uh, rich blues and magentas and purples and um, and neon and gold and all the it was a very colorful show now all the colors were dark they weren't we didn't do a ton of stuff in daylight it was very much a night driven show but it wasn't dark night it was Manhattan the city that never sleeps you know that kind of thing um so it wasn't hard for us to get kids, but the goal was from day one that we would write this show on many layers so that there was stuff there for a kid, um, but that there was stuff there for a tween, stuff there for a teen, stuff there for a college-age student, and stuff there for adults like us. Fundamentally, every show I've ever produced, I write for myself. Yep. And the reason I do that is because I need to be passionate about it. Because if I'm not passionate about it, how can I expect anybody else to be passionate about it? 
So if I don't like it, it's not getting on the air, not on a show I'm producing. Yeah. And then what you do is you cross your fingers and you hope enough people agree with you. And I think the proof is that they did. Season one, we were the number one show week in and week out. We're only on once a week, but we kicked ass mm-hmm. until Power Rangers came along <laughs> and they kicked ours. And we were consistently number two to Power Rangers, always. We were never number three. I mean, yeah. We were always number two, but they we never once beat them, ever. Uh, I And it kills me to say that because I believe with all my heart that we were a better show. Oh, for sure. It's but, not even a contest. But... <laughs> But uh, the audience wanted to see that. Yeah. And they got the kinds of numbers that we never achieved. Um, and so we were regarded as a disappointment, even though we were clear, stilly, clearly still ahead. Um, but we wound up with this tremendous fandom of kids and adults, um, boys and girls, men and women, um, we had a huge LGBT following before people had started putting those initials together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a diverse following ethnically, racially. Um, there was stuff in that show that reached out to people in a way that very few other shows of that day did. Um, it gave them characters that they could identify with. It gave, it, we had people of color on the show regularly. Elisa was, um, her mom was African American. Her father was Native American. We had a diverse cast, both playing humans and playing gargoyles and other creatures, with Keith David playing Goliath and Marina Sirtis playing uh, Demona. Um, and um, we went on the world tour and brought in mythologies from other, from non-Western cultures, including African mythology and South American mythology and Asian mythology. Um, Yeah, we did our Greek mythology story and our Norse mythology story and a lot of Arthurian stuff. God knows a ton of Shakespeare. Um, But we didn't limit it to that. And we, diversity had been... um, going back to my comic book days, an incredibly important um, thing to me. And Gargoyles was going to demonstrate that that could work, and it did demonstrate that it could work. Um, In a lot of ways, people tell me now it was ahead of its time. I think there's some truth to that. I mean, the show is eminently, I think it holds up great. The only thing that um, really dates it are the, lack of cell phones (laughs) or the one cell phone that Xanatos has, which is as big as get smart shoe. Um, (laughs) But, um, but everything else about the show feels just as timely as it ever did. And um, I think if, you know, Disney put that show on a streaming service, it would do phenomenal business um, because people would binge the hell out of that show. Yeah. When we made Young Justice, the first two seasons of Young Justice, um, in 2010, 2011, 2012, um, 
it was, you know, the show did well, but after two seasons, they let us go. Well, the show did so well on Netflix that that's why we're back for season three and are premiering next year on uh, the DC Universe streaming service. And our boss, uh, Sam Register, said to Brandon Vietti and I, who are the two producers on Young Justice, you guys created the perfect binge-watching show. You just did it five years too early. Yep. And so when I think about Gargoyles, I'm like, well, Frank Parr and I created the perfect binge-watching show. We just did it 25 years too early. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think that show could do great business now and and air 65 episodes and then start right in with episode 66 in the new season. But it needs that streaming service uh, appearance to sort of demonstrate that. Because right now there's really no one at Disney that um, believes in the property. I was going to ask you, though, about that. With the success of bringing Young Justice back and with the new Disney streaming platform that's going to be coming at some point in the future... I mean, I, I, I'm not asking you for any secrets. I know you're not at liberty to share anything, even if you know anything. I don't have it. Yeah, but with yeah. those two things, you know, the the success of Young Justice and the new streaming Disney pro, uh, platform, are you any more hopeful now than you have been in years past about seeing it possibly come back? I, I am. Um, you know, we actually were starting to get close right before uh, Disney bought Marvel. And then uh, they bought Marvel, they bought Lucasfilm, and suddenly um, the problem with Gargoyles was why take a chance on an obscure show from their point of view, an obscure show from the 90s that, that's that got a niche fan base. I don't think those things are true, but they do. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we just make Spider-Man or just make Star Wars Rebel, you know, why we've got, in essence, slam dunks in our arsenal now, why go for that long, you know, uh, baseline shot, right? And so that really derailed all the talks I was having with Disney back at, at that time um, because they no longer needed to take a risk on Gargoyles when they had all these sure things. Yeah. But now, if, and Keep in mind, I am, I'm at Warner Bros. I have no inside information about Disney whatsoever. Hell, I barely have any inside information about Warner Bros. <laughs> uh, at, I do believe that if, and it's a big if, I don't know if they're going to do it, but if they put Gargoyles on the new Disney streaming service when that premieres, keep in mind Gargoyles was on the air nonstop on USA Network and then um, uh, Toon Disney and Disney XD for like 15 years, usually late at night, but yeah. nonstop was on every single night, sometimes two episodes a night. Um, but then they took it off the air and they haven't put it on since and they've done nothing with it. But I do think that if they put Gargoyles on that streaming service, the fans will show up and that will demonstrate and, you know, we'll help organize the fans, too. We will demonstrate to Disney that there's money to be made on Gargoyles. And then I think there's a real chance of it coming back in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. In the meantime, I haven't stopped trying to do more Gargoyles comic books. Still trying to get that done. It's been harder than I would have thought. Um, when we did those comics at SLG, they were SLG's 
uh, Gargoyles was its number one selling book, and Gargoyles Bad Guys was its number three selling book. Hmm. Um, they were doing really well for SLG, and SLG wanted to renew them, but it was doing so well that Disney decided to raise the license fee um, in order to get SLG to drop it so that Marvel could do them, because by that time they owned Marvel. Problem was, Marvel had no interest in doing it. Mm -hmm. So they priced it out of SLG's um, market, and then Marvel had Spider-Man and Iron Man and Thor and Captain America and the Avengers and the X-Men and what the hell? They didn't need gargoyles. Right. It would have been lost at Marvel. So it's been surprisingly difficult to get that book going again. Um, but without some venue, there's no way... Uh, I think the fan base is out there, and I think the property is still eminently viable, and I think we could make more gargoyles and do more with the property without a doubt, but Disney doesn't believe that, and I've got no way to prove it to them. Yeah. You know, as long as they put out no nothing with gargoyles, I can't prove to them that it'll work. And they won't put anything out with gargoyles until it's proven that it'll work. So that Catch-22 is a real problem right now. But if they've got a streaming service that they're desperate to have content or library content just sitting there, my hope is, is well, yeah, why not put gargoyles on there too? Um, and if they do that, then I think we've got a real shot because then I think we'll be able to prove what I believe and what a lot of the fans believe, which is that there's a huge fan base for gargoyles and that it would not be hard to expand that fan base if it was on a streaming service where they could binge the show uh, and show it to friends and get them to binge the show, etc. I think we could be really big for them, yeah. but we need something to to demonstrate and so i'm hoping that'll be the streaming service yeah well fingers crossed we don't know very much about it but it seems like they they would be foolish to not put everything onto it you know they they own such a huge catalog why wouldn't they just put it put it out there um yeah I, that's what i assume too which yeah. is that uh that they will i assume that they will because i assume they'll put everything they got on it mm -hmm. um, why wouldn't um and but i don't know that you know yeah they may decide to curate it or something like that, yeah. in which case we've got to get them to include gargoyles as a potential uh, choice. And, and um, I don't know how hard that'll be, but, yeah. but it, I'm hopeful. I am. I, whenever that streaming service starts up, that's our best shot. Yeah. And I think it's a good shot if we can get it on the service. All right. All eyes on that then. Um, I, I, I've kept you for an hour, which is way longer than I thought I was going to. I just want to share one thing, possibly a question. We'll see. I, I talked to uh, Keith David earlier this week, and I asked him if he had any sort of fun memories or happy memories that he that he could share that I could maybe include. And uh, he said that his happiest memory of the show was when he got you guys to work in Jalapena into the script. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to say I'm going to correct him a little bit actually okay uh, he didn't get us to do that I mean he did indirectly but he didn't like say hey do this for me yeah uh, what happened was um, jalapeno was something that Keith said uh, periodically I'm sure he um, told yeah. you the basic story 
Um, and uh, of how he started saying that, which was this jazz singer uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, who used to say it as part of her act. And it became something that he adopted, loved and adopted. And he would say it all the time, not obviously on mic, but in the booth. You know, it was his way of saying hallelujah. Right. And at one point, Jamie Thomason, who was our voice director, who I think you'll be talking to eventually, mm-hmm. um, turned to me and said, I bet you can't put jalapeno in one of your scripts. <laughs> and I said, I'll take that bet. <laughs> and uh, our story editor, one of our story editors, Gary Sperling, the late, great, amazing Gary Sperling, um, wonderful writer, wonderful story editor, and great friend, um, turned in a perfectly wonderful episode called Protection. And I did my pass on it as I always did my pass on the final scripts. And when he got it back, he was like, okay, uh, what's the deal with this jalapeno thing? Uh, because I, you know, in order, the trick was to get Goliath to say it, obviously. Right. Um, and so in order to do that, there was this whole thing where Dracon has jalapenos and he offers them to Elisa and then a, a Broadway winds up with the jar of jalapenos and he shouts jalapeno and, and then Goliath is offered a jalapeno at the very end and he's never had one before and so at the end of the episode he shouts jalapeno. <laughs> and... I thought that was it. You know, it was a goofy running joke through the episode, mostly done just to prove Thomas and wrong. <laughs> and then Jamie said, all right, fine, but I bet you can't get Hudson to say it. Um, and I said, well, I'll take that bet too. And so we began, and I then began to feel, honestly, that um, it was useful. In other words, one thing that we didn't have on the show was a curse word that we could use because, you know, we still had S&P concerns. We couldn't say damn. We couldn't say shit or fuck or any of those words. Yeah. But we could have our characters say jalapeno. So one by one, they all got to say it, but then we began to use it as a curse word. And then it... So what you'll see on the show is starting with protection, first Broadway and Goliath say it, then Hudson says it in another episode, then Lex says it, then Elisa, and pretty soon they're all saying it. And you'll see that it becomes pretty commonplace in the show for a, a chunk of episodes. And then you'll see it goes away completely if you watch them in order. And the reason for that is is that... Um, Frank came to me and said, you got to stop using jalapeno. I said, why? It's working great. We can use it as a curse word, blah, 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 everything I just said to you. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, all the directors and storyboard artists, they hate it, and they're rebelling if you don't stop using it. <laughs> oh, no. And for them, they were felt like it was too Ninja Turtle. It was like Kawabunga. Yeah. It was too silly and goofy, and they felt it didn't suit the tone of our show. And I said... I don't think that's right the way we're using it. I think we're, the way we've come to use it as a curse word 
as an under the breath thing, it, it's working pretty well. And uh, I think Frank was more on the fence than I was, but at the end of the day, it was like, you need to do this for the guys. Um, they, uh, they don't like it. <laughs> so what you'll see is that it then goes away until the very end of the season when I threw a last one in just to be yeah. contrary. Um, and then once I started doing the comics for SLG, I started using it again because I, I still think it works. And the fans actually responded very well to it. That's um, amazing. So, uh, but yes, uh, we would never have done it without Keith David, but it was actually Jamie Thompson who got me to do it by, um, in essence, daring me. That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm equally manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, Greg, this was this. I, I didn't anticipate holding you for this long, so I really do appreciate your time. Uh, not, it's not a problem. I'm always happy to talk gargoyles. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. <laughs>